Hello, and welcome to episode three of JobsCast. My guest today is Tess Wise. Tess earned her PhD in government from Harvard University and is currently a visiting assistant professor at Amherst College, where she has taught or will soon be teaching courses on identity politics, race, and consumer finance. Tess and I became friends about eight years ago while living in the same building in the Inman Square neighborhood of Somerville, Massachusetts, and today's episode is not my first time collaborating with Tess on a creative project. If you're so inclined, you can search Patrick Bubble Little Bird. Bubble is spelled B-U-B-U-L on YouTube, and you'll find Tess and I and a few other friends singing a song I wrote seven years ago. I just rewatched it, and I feel like for any project that's over five years old, if you revisit it and you're not overwhelmed by cringes, then it's aged decently. But hey, you're a better judge than me, so let me know what you think. Um, for today's episode, I'm so glad to have been able to have a conversation with Tess, and in this iteration of our collaborative history, focus on her primary interests and expertise. In our discussion, we cover Tess's experience of COVID-19 as a political science professor at Amherst, and her views on how her undergraduate students responded to the pandemic and the abrupt transition to virtual learning. We talk about how we believe Gen Z has considerably more moxie than the think piece literati tends to give them credit for. Side note on that, you'll hear Tess and I, we're both millennials, refer to young people as though it's a group we no longer belong to, which feels really odd to me, given that in a lot of ways I don't really feel like I've aged internally since I was 15. Uh, then Tess and I turn to her research on bankruptcy. Tess talks about the history of bankruptcy, its impact, and the misperceptions that surround it. We also explore what bankruptcy filing looks like on the ground. For her research, Tess attended bankruptcy court proceedings in Utah, Tennessee, and Massachusetts, and the geographical differences she encountered are fascinating. I hope you never have to file for personal bankruptcy, but even if you don't, that doesn't mean you shouldn't think about and be knowledgeable about the role this process plays in the American welfare system. In the latter half of our conversation, Tess and I discuss the ideas of postal banking, universal basic income, de-alienation, and the monopolization of work hours by the most privileged members of society. Before I present this week's conversation, I want to give you a concrete example of why you should know and care about the main topic today, bankruptcy. Consider this passage from one of Tess's recent papers. Quote, The main beneficiaries of personal bankruptcy in the United States are wealthy and middle-class white Americans who have access to a large variety of competitively priced credit instruments and benefit from bankruptcy protection in case of unexpected economic shocks, while poor and particularly black and brown Americans pay for everyone's bankruptcies many times over through high interest rates and fees. Squeezing these populations has been a key driver of economic growth in the United States, the benefits of which are primarily captured by a white financial elite. You can read the rest of Tess's paper at her personal website, TWISE, that's T-W-I-S-E dot people dot Amherst dot edu. You cannot escape the story of the U.S.'s vast economic expansion in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries without first reckoning with the cruelty and brutality that this expansion inflicted on black communities, indigenous communities, and other communities of people of color. Tess and I don't touch on race explicitly in our conversation, so I wanted to let you know here in the opening monologue that some of Tess's work incorporates the interpretive framework of critical race theory. Let me read you a short and clear excerpt from the Critical Race Theory Wikipedia page. Here's the quote. Legal scholar Roy L. Brooks has defined critical race theory as a collection of critical stances against the existing legal order from a race-based point of view, adding that, 
It focuses on the various ways in which the received tradition and law adversely affects people of color, not as individuals, but as a group. The question always lurking in the background of critical race theory is this. What would the legal landscape look like today if people of color were the decision makers? Everyone knows that the growing gap between the richest and poorest members of society is increasing the levels of distrust, fragmentation, and ill will in our country. What might be an even graver issue is the ever-growing gap between our capacity in technology and our immobility in morality. The COVID-19 pandemic and the protests of the murders of black Americans at the hands of police officers have led to this incredibly fraught moment. It's a moment that calls for newness, clearly. We need new tools, new ideas, a new vision. What if more of us, as one of the many things we can do, tried to employ critical race theory in our thinking to take a different look at our existing social order? There are so many other lenses under which the world can be scrutinized other than the default white supremacist one so often used. Ultimately, the point of JobsCast is to prompt exploration about how we make sense of the working world and, by extension, the social fabric of America. I hope today's conversation makes you question, think, wonder, and feel. And then, since those experiences are not enough, I hope you find ways to act from a stance of dignity, integrity, and advocacy. I now present to you my conversation with Tess Wise. Tess, welcome to JobsCast. Thanks so much for having me, Pat. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Tess, I know you'll be teaching two classes soon at Amherst as a visiting assistant professor. Um, How has COVID affected the situation at Amherst to date? It's been really interesting. Uh, So in the middle of last semester, basically around spring break, we suddenly said to the students, you can't come back from spring break and everyone's going remote. So... (laughs) Uh, I was teaching two courses at that point, and we had to switch them to being entirely remote. And I'm just so grateful that I don't teach a dance class or a lab or something where you have uh, you have to be in the classroom. And I'm lucky that my political science courses that are very discussion-based actually work reasonably well through Zoom. So we, we did that, and we made it through last semester. Uh, and so for my seniors who were graduating, it was a really different experience. And for my students who are new at Amherst, I think it was strange to spend, you know, if you're a freshman, you spend, you know, one semester, not even a whole semester, and you suddenly are, and you're suddenly gone. So it can be right. disconcerting for some of the students. Uh, I think one of the most noticeable things was that it really made me think about the different con- contexts my students come from. Because when I see them on campus and we're all in one place and we have sort of common resources, we have libraries, we have all these common shared resources, it's easier to think of the students as coming from a similar context, as having similar Mm, resources available. But when you can see very clearly that some students are in their parents' you know, vacation homes in Maine and other <laughs> students are in a basement struggling to get Wi-Fi and competing with three other family members for yes. bandwidth, it's really striking. And those differences um, are much more noticeable in the remote learning format. So that was something mm. that that I really noticed. Yeah. So there's, there's a sort of uh, if people can get on campus and everyone is on campus, it's almost like a resource equalization that occurs. Uh, but when everyone is back where they came from, that is most certainly not the case, it sounds like. Interesting. Tess, how about for you as the teacher, what were some 
surprising takeaways from trying to move your curriculum into a digital space? Anything that was super surprising or not surprising at all? How did it conform with your expectations? I ended up using videos a lot more in my teaching, and it's something that I'd been meaning to do for a while is to include more multimedia. But once I was just another talking head, it became so much more important to break up the class time a little bit and to have different things for students to look at other than like the little Zoom thumbnail of my face. Um, (laughs) So I ended up using a lot of videos and it was great. Uh, I was teaching an identity politics class and I ended up doing a whole section using YouTubers. And it not only let the students have something, you know, different to look at, and they all were so, <laughs> they said they kept telling me how much they liked the videos, which I don't know what that says about me. Um, <laughs> but I think it was just, it was nice for them to see that, A, there were all these things going on on sites like YouTube that were actually related to what we were doing in the classroom. And B, that it was engaging all these different learning modalities. So students who were much more audio driven felt really comfortable. And I had different students who were speaking up in this context than some of my regular students. And so it was a good encouragement for me to think more about multimodal teaching. So thinking about getting students who are you know, great at reading, but also students who are more into listening or watching, just incorporating more of that into the classroom and seeing some of the benefits of, of doing that was, was really neat. I think I think the pandemic probably for most people has had this dual effect of on the one hand making us countenance our vulnerability, fragility, mortality and perhaps on the other hand uh making us grateful for every breath of fresh air, um knowing what could happen if you get a bad case of COVID-19. I'm wondering Given our sense of fragility, but then uh, like an accompanying appreciation for for those of us who've been able to make it through thus far, did you feel like there was a sort of uh, rising to the occasion, like a kind of level of gameness where students, you know, knew that, okay, this is the only way we can learn. And um, it's really great that I'm still able to get an education right now, let alone at such a good school as Amherst. Do you feel that, did, did were you able to pick up on some of that, that students were really trying to kind of do the do their best in a, in a tough overall situation? Oh, they were. And I was so impressed by my students because they were really thrown a curveball. And especially the seniors, right? They're going into their senior spring. They're thinking about the parties. And suddenly it's like you don't get to see anyone again. And they really managed to rise to the occasion and not only sort of keep working at a generally high level, but really think critically about what was going on in the world around them. I was teaching a political ethnography class and a lot of the students adapted their projects to study COVID. And that was just so fascinating, seeing students not only sort of, you know, continuing to do this work, but really thriving, really taking the opportunity to turn their lens on a on a new and important topic. Um, sometimes even looking at their own families and their own homes. And I think one of the sort of upsides of that sort of context, contextual factor I was talking about earlier is that it made for a more, I got to know my students in that context more. So I had more students who did projects that involved their hometowns or their families or their communities. Um, and I think that was kind of neat. Uh, so they, they really rose to the occasion. I think I'm so impressed with the young people I meet uh, at this time because they're, they're really doing amaz- amazing things. It, it makes me think too, I, I would almost wanna interview more professors who are teaching 
uh, undergrads, I just feel like I've, I've encountered so many think pieces about how fragile Gen Z is. I mean, first, uh, I guess we're both millennials and we uh, received the brunt of a lot of baby boomer criticism in the media, but I feel like that's moved on to Gen Z now. And um, you're, I'm sure you're aware of Jonathan Haidt's work, uh, mm. The Coddling of the American Mind. And I, I don't know, it's just, it's never... It's never sat right with me. I mean, I get like I don't have kids, but plenty of my friends do. And I I get that it could be problematic and even harmful to be overprotective, broadly speaking, of children, you know, uh, from young kids all the way up to college students. But I just feel like sometimes that sort of rhetoric is a bit overwrought. I I get the sense that young people are strong and adaptable and have really risen to the occasion. I I don't know what your response to that might be. Oh, I totally agree. And I I see a similar thing. I think that the sort of fragile snowflake rhetoric flies in the face of what I see every day, which is students doing brave, important, uh, and challenging things. Like I'm in a book club right now at Amherst that was started by a bunch of sophomores who in the sort of aftermath of COVID and everyone leaving campus wanted to create community and have a space to talk about race. And so they started this resistance reading book club and recruited a whole bunch of faculty members and other people to be involved. That's so cool. But it was generated by the main people who are running this whole thing are, are sophomores. And they have the they have the logistical infrastructure. They're also native with all the digital technologies that uh, they make they make those of us who are millennials look like right. uh, look like the new boomers or something. Yeah, we're no longer the tech savvy generation. I, and I'll take it. They're great. Um, right, right. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's just, I, th- I think, I really agree. Um, I like some of Jonathan Haidt's work, but I do think on this point, he, I think he sort of falls into this trap that I see a lot of media personalities falling into, which is confusing passionate belief for fragility. And mm. I'm not quite sure how that confusion happens, but for some reason, the earnestness and the authenticity seems to read as fragile, whereas I think it's really vulnerable. And mm. that's actually a lot stronger than than that sort of fragile snowflake narrative would lead us to believe. That's such an astute point. I really like that. Let's pivot, um, Tess, to some of your research. If you could just define for our listeners what you mean by personal bankruptcy, the welfare state, and revisionist literature. Sure. So... Personal bankruptcy for me is a legal institution and it's different than just being broke. So sometimes people will colloquially say, colloquially say, oh, I'm bankrupt when really they just mean I'm I'm broke. But for me, it is actually the legal institution of bankruptcy. So personal bankruptcy in the United States has actually existed in theory since the Constitution was written. And there's a clause in the Constitution that says states can have should have uniform bankruptcy laws. Well, actually, it says Congress can pass uniform bankruptcy laws. And the idea was that you wouldn't have states that would become debtor havens um, and that this would prevent problems with America's economic development. Um, But part of what was interesting in terms of the development of bankruptcy is that although it's mentioned in the Constitution, it doesn't really become an institution anything like it is today until the 1890s. So it takes over 100 years to really sort of solidify bankruptcy as this institution, even though it's mentioned right at the beginning, at the founding. So there's this existence of debt and debtors and debtor prisons right from the beginning. But in terms of having this legal structure, it really only grows in fits and spurts over time. 
Um, and so what we have today is personal bankruptcy is a process that has three ways to go through personal bankruptcy. The most common is something called chapter seven. And with chapter seven, if you make less than median income, so in your, and it's based on your state of residence and household size. So they'll look it up in some table and see whether the amount of money you make is sort of more or less than the median in your area based on your family size. And if you make less than median income, you can file under chapter seven. And chapter seven is sort of the most straightforward and probably if you know a little bit about bankruptcy, what you would initially think about, which is you go in with your, usually with a lawyer, sometimes people do it alone, um, but you list all your assets and you list all your debts. And then the court basically says, okay, you have these assets, you have these debts, we'll take your assets, we'll sell them, we'll pay the debts we can, and the rest of them, especially the unsecured ones, so like your credit card debt, your payday loans, your student loans, well, actually, sorry, back up, student loans are not included, even though mm. they're unsecured, we'll get to that later. Okay. <laughs> um, but your unsecured debt, so credit card debt, things like that, basically disappears in about 90 days. Um, and you can file once every eight years. And it's more or less a straightforward process. Uh, secured debts like a mortgage or a car, uh, those are treated pretty differently. So if you want to keep the asset, keep the car or the house, you'll have to pay back the debt or keep making your payments. But your unsecured debt can go away in chapter seven. If I'm remembering correctly, Tess, the figure was 15% of Americans could have improved their net worth by filing for bankruptcy but there are a lot of reasons why people don't. I think the the lay listener would probably deduce that there's a lot of shame involved, that um, entering into that legal process of filing for bankruptcy uh, may make one feel like they have a sort of financial scarlet letter uh, attached to them. What are some of the other reasons why people do and don't file for bankruptcy? Yeah, and you're totally right about the shame factor. Um, fun fact on that is that... Uh, researchers often underestimate the number of bankruptcies that are filed because in surveys, people don't even want to admit that they've gone through bankruptcy. Oh, so wow. unless you like actually look at the legal records, you get the wrong number of, of bankruptcies in, in the United States. But, oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So people usually put off filing for a variety of reasons. One of the main reasons is that it's expensive. It costs uh, usually at least three or $400 to pay the court fees. And if you're going to hire a lawyer, which most cases you need to, it'll cost you at least $1,000 for a chapter seven and most likely closer to 1500. If you're filing a chapter 13, which is a more complicated process for people who make above median income, or if you want to save a house from foreclosure, that'll cost you maybe three to $5,000. And so one of the interesting things that researchers find is that people often have to save up to file for bankruptcy. So it's often a waiting game in terms of waiting until you have the, the money to be able like to do the, it. The language is, is so uh, counterintuitive on the surface, saving up to file for bankruptcy. Yeah, there's a great article by Katie Porter, who's now a uh, now in, now in the U.S. Uh, House of Representatives, I believe, but she was originally a bankruptcy researcher, and the, the article is called Saving Up for Bankruptcy, and I just think it's a great... Uh, yeah, really great, eye-grabbing title. Yeah, and it makes you sort of think about these different factors that go into it. Um, another thing that can happen is that a lot of bankruptcies depend on timing. So I spend a lot of my dissertation research studying people filing Chapter 13, which is used to stop a foreclosure. And so in that case, if you've got a foreclosure notice, filing the Chapter 13 becomes much more of an imperative. It might be something you need to do right then to prevent the foreclosure from happening. 
So there can be these sort of like housing imperatives that are a big reason why people file. The other factor to consider is that for some people, bankruptcies are kind of like cascades. There's one big event that trips off the bankruptcy. Often these are health events. So if you have like a huge sickness where you lose your house, your job, your income, and your health insurance, and you're really sick, the bankruptcy often flows within a couple of years of the initial event happening. There's sort of not that much of a lag. Whereas for other people, it's a whole bunch of different factors that come together. So say you have a couple, one couple, one member of the couple loses a job, they try to make things work and you hang on for a while, but then you get behind on your mortgage. And so then you take out another loan to try to pay the mortgage and that works for a little while. And then eventually something will push you towards bankruptcy. Um, and I call these forcing moments. So there are moments basically when your hand gets forced to think of it sort of like when you're playing cards, sure, sure. Um, where you sort of suddenly realize that if you don't do this, things are going to be very bad. Uh, but often it's kind of a slow moving avalanche before then where you have these whole bunch of different factors. And there are many times when people would benefit, as you pointed out, lots of people statistically would benefit from filing. And Michelle White, whose work you were talking about earlier, finds that an extraordinary number of Americans would be better off financially if they filed for bankruptcy. But the getting over that sort of hump to file usually takes a major event or a major moment where people feel like they are at a at a crossroads. What was it like observing these proceedings face to face in you did it in Utah, Tennessee and Massachusetts. Is that right? I did. It was fascinating. Um, part of what's so interesting about bankruptcy that I learned because I started watching bankruptcy court uh, is that. In bankruptcy, most people don't even see a bankruptcy judge. The main meeting that everyone goes to is this sort of intake meeting, and they encounter a trustee who is a representative of, uh, they're, they're an independent contractor employed by the Department of Justice. And they're basically the interface between the debtors and the debtors' lawyers, and then the bankruptcy judges, who are ultimately going to be doing the sort of paperwork on the case, but the trustee is the one who checks all your petition, your sort of initial documents, who makes sure that you're that you're meeting the criteria to file because there are some debt limits. And most people go through this process and they never actually go to court. And the other thing that really struck me is that it's pretty rare in the context of going through this intake meeting for someone to ask you what happened. Hmm which I think is something that people assume yeah, is going to happen. a fundamental question, yeah. <laughs> like people come to this, it's called the meeting of creditors. And A, there are not usually very many creditors. And B, it's this very sort of formulaic, uh, often it takes about five minutes and it's a lot of yes, no questions. They put you under oath and it can really vary as well, depending on the location. So in Tennessee, I, I observed courts both in Memphis and in a little town called Greenville, which is a small rural town in eastern Tennessee. And it was so strikingly different. In Greenville, there would be maybe 20 people in the room during one of these meetings. So people are waiting for their turn. And at one time, you'll have someone with their lawyer speaking with the trustee. And then it just, you know, whoever's next it goes on for about four or five hours usually. And in Greenville, the trustee would actually ask people sometimes what happened, uh, and the trustee would look very closely at everybody's financial records and ask them lots and lots of questions. And in Memphis, the procedure occurs basically in a giant, open, almost gymnasium-like space 
There are like a hundred people in the room. The process, people don't even get, people don't even sit down. They just walk up to the trustee, get sworn under oath and like ask a bunch of quick fire, yes, no, yes, no questions. So it's really interesting to see the variation, um, even within a state like Tennessee, where you have areas that are, that are very different. Uh, like Eastern Tennessee is very rural, very white. Uh, Memphis is much more urban and also has a, a very large black population. So it's, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating contrast. It reminds me a little bit. Have you seen the movie I, Daniel Blake? No. Uh, I strongly recommend it. It's, I think, from 2016. It's about uh, an older man in England who's single and is trying to navigate the healthcare system to get benefits. And he doesn't really have computer literacy skills and he's on his own. And he is put into this system. He's fallen on hard times. And it's just so heartbreaking seeing how cold and mechanistic the system is and how little room is left for any qualitative data, really, for him to just narrate his story and to do some explaining. And I'm, I'm thinking about that a little bit in the context of some of these proceedings. It, it seems like uh, that question of like what happened would, would really uh, inject some humanizing oxygen into the scenario. I, I get that courts are very busy places and they're often backlogged with so much work to do, but... Uh, I could just imagine myself sitting there and being like, oh, this is it's hard to watch. Did, did you feel any of that? Oh, yeah. It, it's certainly a um, an emotionally charged experience. Uh, and going through a bankruptcy proceeding is stressful. I, I got to be a pretty good student of watching people's nervous tics. Mm. So sitting and sitting and observing people waiting for their bankruptcy intake meetings, you get to see the whole gamut of sort of human nervous behavior from like people who chronically shuffle through every piece of paper that they're holding to everyone who's (laughs) tapping their foot constantly to frantic, frantic phone calls. So many frantic phone calls because you have to get to court at a particular time and they don't give you an option of when to show up for this meeting. So, you know, you've often had to cancel everything in your day. Bankruptcy is a federal procedure. So the courthouse is often quite a ways away from where you live um so it's it can be for example in western massachusetts or in eastern massachusetts in boston where i was doing the research the entire entire eastern chunk of massachusetts gets funneled into the boston bankruptcy court so it's something that you have to really set aside time for and it can be a it can be a really grueling procedure at a personal level and part of what was interesting for my research during the dissertation is that i was able to actually ask people to tell their stories right after they've gone through these meetings where they were thinking they were going to get to tell their story, but no one asked. So that part was was really gratifying because often people had taken off the whole day from work to come to this 10 minute meeting. They probably needed to vent. Yeah. And often people often people really felt like talking. uh, These were sometimes sometimes the interviews were really difficult, but usually they were all you had to do is say what happened and someone will talk your ear off because these experiences are are deeply lived, but they're also not ones that people get to talk about a lot. So having someone where they know it's anonymous, having someone where I'm a researcher who's genuinely interested was just, it was neat to get to meet people in these tough moments and see their resilience and their strength and their, and hear, and hear what happened. Yeah. Super interesting. Tess, uh, I gleaned from your writing that the uh, bankruptcy abuse protection Uh, Prevention and Consumer Protection Act of 2005 um, was this significant um, chunk of legislation that uh, I think you quoted Paul Krugman as saying that it essentially allowed credit card companies to get rich. And it seemed like it wasn't something that was 
urgent for um, people in Congress to pass into law, but then probably some lobbyists came and, you know, did what lobbyists did. Dumped uh, millions added, of added dollars. Some, yep, <laughs> increased the financial incentives considerably, and then it became law. Um, who, in your view, are the sort of politicians who um, did an admirable job resisting this, and who were the politicians taking the lobby money to make it legislation? Sure. So I don't I don't know the sort of list politician by politician, but I think a telling a telling piece of information about the Bankruptcy Abuse Prevention and Consumer Protection Act, or as it's called in the industry, BAPSIPA. I was wondering uh, if it was like BAPSIPA or BAPSIPA as I was BAPSIPA reading it. Man, that doesn't come the out the tongue very nicely. <laughs> oh, I, I remember asking people questions about this early on, and I'd always butcher it. Um, <laughs> um, but something that was fascinating was that one of the big credit card companies that was really pushing for this legislation was also the number one donor to George Bush's presidential campaign. Interesting. So there was a strong link between sort of Bush and his family and these sort of credit companies at the level of campaign finance. And they donated to, I think, I was looking through the congressional record and there were all these references to the credit card people throwing good parties or like having oh, put wow. in all this money. And so my impression is that I, I don't know the the exact details. I'm not a I'm not a Congress scholar, so I don't know the ins and outs of of this the, that world as well. But that they put so much money into it, and that was really the one of the defining kind of moments around 2005. Why this was happening then is that there was this big influx of cash because they had been trying to do this reform for years and years and years. And I think Elizabeth Warren is probably the most notable person who was against BAPSIPA and who's been very outspoken and has Elizabeth Warren, her academic research is actually all about bankruptcy. And so if we could have listened to anyone, you would think you would listen to the person who studies this professionally right. and academically and has written books about it. Right. Uh, but instead, uh, it seemed like most people were more interested in in the credit card funding and lobbying money. And I think my impression is basically that neither, there was not a huge partisan component to this. So Warren was certainly on one side, but I think it passed pretty overwhelmingly. And mm. that's kind of part of what's interesting often with these consumer finance issues, they are less polarized and partisan on their face, but they tend to, uh, tend to hurt certain groups a lot more than others. And we don't tend to think about these serious differences and outcomes when we look at how widespread the support is for these types of reforms. On the more systemic side, BAPSIPA comes at a moment in 2005, which is sort of following on the tales of 1990s welfare reform. So if you think about like Clinton's welfare reform, which turned welfare into workfare. So this idea of, of making people be personally responsible, ensuring that people weren't quote unquote abusing the system. And you see references to that in the name of the act, right? Bankruptcy abuse prevention. And Serena Laws, who's a professor at Trinity College who studies bankruptcy, has studied this, uh, the process of passing BAPSIPA. And she finds that a lot of the language is similarly concerned with these frames of abuse and personal responsibility and people cheating the system. And again, it really flies in the face of Elizabeth Warren's research, <laughs> which <laughs> used, looked at thousands of different consumer bankruptcies using the Consumer Bankruptcy Project at Harvard and found that really it wasn't that people were uh, more and more happy to file bankruptcy. It's that the middle class was getting squeezed. 
And I think that narrative has certainly been borne out as we have looked back on the 2000s and that sort of era of increasing. So we have we have sort of good times economically for the U.S., but also increasing economic inequality as the one percent and the top incomes really pull apart. So there's a sort of part of that legacy of personal responsibility and not abusing welfare and those those lenses of how we understand uh, the way we interact with the state gets gets leveraged at this moment as well. This actually does seem like a good a good lead into um, the the issue of bankruptcy, um, as far as I understand, being a segment of the welfare state and its its Janus faced nature. It has this private public dynamic that when all the chips fall, uh, end up really squeezing black and Latinx uh, communities much more so than white ones. So I guess that might that was three questions in one. Maybe you can uh, walk us through a sort of a summation of what we mean when we use the term welfare state and then also talk about this um, private public dynamic and how it affects different populations. Definitely. So I love working on this topic because when I started studying bankruptcy, I never thought of it as being part of the welfare state. It seemed like a totally different area to me. And it wasn't until I spent a lot of time sort of in the world of bankruptcy that I realized that it was functioning as, a, as social insurance, at least for many people. And this idea of defining, so the American welfare state, the much maligned American welfare state, <laughs> is, is a great topic to study because it's a lot more complex and weird than people think it is. So I think the the sort of layman appreciation of the American welfare state is that it's very small and it is incredibly stingy. And at some level, that's not at all incorrect. But at another level, there's all these pieces of how we provide social aid and social insurance and support in the United States that are spread in between the state and private entities or between the federal government and state governments or between um, so think about a program like um, Medicaid or Medicare is actually probably a better example where you have a lot of private providers who interface with the federal government. But when people think about who gives them their Medicare, they often think of this as a private interaction, which is why you saw during the Tea Party protests all those signs, you know, keep your hands off my Medicare. And so I study this part of the welfare state that isn't usually thought about as being part of the welfare state. And we call it the public-private welfare state to emphasize that uh, there's components of how credit works where you might use credit, say, say you get really sick and you don't have great health insurance, or more commonly, say you get sick in a way that's not covered well by health insurance. I hear a lot of stories like this in bankruptcy rooms. Um, so if you're sick in a way that's not covered by health insurance, you might end up accumulating a lot of credit card debt. Maybe you take out a different personal loan. And if you file bankruptcy and you discharge that debt, you're effectively getting that, that health care for, for free. I mean, it's it's a strange it's a strange definition of free because you had to do a lot of work in order for it to be free. But sure, right. um, you're you're at some level that you're not taking your the state is intervening such that you got health care and right. you didn't have to use right. all your money to pay back this debt. <laughs> um, and so at that level, you see that the state is actually playing a really important role. So there's sort of the component where the state suddenly uses bankruptcy to turn credit credit markets into a social safety net. 
And then there's another aspect to it, which is that by setting bankruptcy laws, the state actually deeply influences credit markets. So when creditors think about who they want to extend credit to, one of the things they consider is how easy is it for you to file bankruptcy? Mm. Um, are you in a state where it's harder? Because some states have different state level regulations, which sort of could technically maybe be brought up under the Constitution, but no one seems to have done this. And I think there's some legal precedent where they basically decided that states could kind of do their own things as long as some of the federal things were followed. But anyway, there's a fair bit of state variation, despite what the Constitution tells you there should be. And so that often means that states have, there's different credit markets in different states. And then there's also sort of the fact that because people can file bankruptcy, companies have to take that into account when considering how to structure their loans and how to structure their structure their credit regimes. So whether they're going to charge you really high rates of interest, um, whether they're going to look at where look at uh, different pieces of information about you and looking at the credit application, you know, they can look at certain things. Other things are are not allowed because of laws that we've worked hard to to prevent things like redlining. But there are lots of ways to get at pieces of information that are strongly correlated with things like race and and uh, geographic location. And credit markets take full advantage of that type of information. And so in setting bankruptcy laws, the U.S. is also taking a governmental role in credit markets, um, which is a thing we don't necessarily think of as being part of a part of the welfare state or the government or really we tend to think of credit markets as being purely driven by classic market forces this should be the domain right. of like pure economics right. but really there's this giant factor that the government is saying all this credit you can default on it and that's right. a huge part of the system that really determines how a lot of things go so uh yeah i i started thinking that the state was you know, only tangentially involved in this and then came away realizing that it's a much bigger part of the social safety net than I ever realized. What historical forces test sort of forced this underground? As you're saying, this is there, there's a lot of money. It's a it's a big factor. But most people, including me, are, are very surprised to, to learn of this relationship of of the government to bankruptcy uh, as it falls under the welfare state. Um, that word came up a couple of times in your paper, submerged. So I guess what forces led to this being below water as opposed to above board? Totally. And to make another connection from earlier, you asked me about this sort of revisionist literature. And I think this submerged concept really comes out of this revisionist literature. So the revisionist literature of the welfare state says what we thought we knew about the American welfare state is actually not as correct as as we realized. It's actually a lot bigger, a lot more complex, and there's a lot more going on. And the things that we that make it bigger are often hard to see. So to take another example of, of another submerged institution to maybe give people a, a flavor of this is something like the earned income tax credit. So the earned income tax credit is a major factor in US redistributive policy. It's a negative tax. So if you if you fall below a certain level of income, you get a certain amount of negative tax, meaning that even if you had zero, you can get amount you can get money back through this program um, and it's it's redistributive so it's taking money from more wealthy folks and it's giving it to people through the tax code but because it happens through the tax code people don't think of it as welfare so when they survey people and ask do you benefit from government programs many people who get the earned income tax credit say that they don't because it's presented as something that's just part of their taxes 
part of their finances. It's not necessarily a state redistributing function, even though mm. that's actually what's going on. Um, and so one of the forces that's pushed things into this position is really our history in American politics of not wanting to have a generous government safety net, but simultaneously mm. wanting social safety nets. So we have these contradictory right. desires, which is that we really don't want to have this generous safety net so that people are, you know, there's this idea of you want, you don't want handouts. Um, so there's this huge negative sense in America against handouts and against welfare as, as cash sort of benefits. And a lot of that comes sort of deep within the American system from deep, you know, individualism and all sorts of good, good old American history. Right, right. Um, so there's sort of that factor at play, which leads to this demand for less government. But then since, I mean, since basically the aftermath of the Great Depression, it's been very clear that we need government supports, especially in times of economic crisis. So there's been a simultaneous demand for an activist government to prevent us from having everything fall apart, to try to help us navigate economic crises and to perhaps not cause economic crises. So you have these sort of dual, these dual demands and the submerged welfare state is kind of the political solution to that. Because when you're doing things through the tax code or if you're allowing social support to happen through bankruptcy, it doesn't get voted on. It doesn't become a ballot issue. It doesn't become a political battleground. Uh, mm. And so that allows these types of policies to exist and to get expanded often because they are political solutions that allow us to satisfy these contradictory demands. Yeah, that's that's very interesting and well said. I I have the perhaps uh, simplistic notion that one can gauge the moral health of a nation by seeing how uh, the least enfranchised and privileged and resourced people in a society are faring. And it, it, what really strikes me about a lot of your work is that it can it can be traced back to some of these what are truisms for a lot of Americans. Um, you got to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, we don't take handouts from the government. Um, the list goes on. One of them that I thought was really interesting was this this notion that the credit market is people conceive of it as a way of independently getting access to to funding essentially to to get credit and put it toward what they want even as even as it puts them into debt and there's this sort of disconnect between how that tends to be viewed versus quote handouts from the government can can you speak to some of that uh, perspectival shift that occurs there yeah, totally. Um, and I have some some research I've been doing with my colleague Andreas Wiedemann at Princeton. And we interviewed people about how they perceive their access to credit. So if they thought they had easy access to credit. And if people thought they had easy access to credit, and they also tended to buy, if these same people tended also to buy into racial dog whistles, so this type of idea that uh, Black people are less deserving because they're less hardworking. This type of symbolic racism that isn't saying it's not the explicit type of racism, sort of old old school racism, if you will, of uh, explicit motivated individual hatred. It's these societal frames around who is hardworking, who is deserving, who who should be helped. Um, and we find that when people have easy access to credit and they buy into these frames, they are much more likely to want private funding 
for public goods. So things like um, education and unemployment. We find that people would rather have people use debt for this. And it kind of makes sense at some level, right? If you're sitting there and you say, I have really easy access to credit. I believe everyone should be pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and black people especially. And then you ask how you'd like to fund education. The answer should probably in this, these people's eyes is usually get a loan, give people mm. loans. And part of what's interesting is that credit markets are part of that are part of that scenario. And what credit markets allow people to do is to imagine that they would never have to rely on the welfare state, which means that the person who is relying is somehow an other, is different, is fundamentally less deserving because deserving people can get credit. And so it links to these notions we have of deservingness, of markets as impartial, of uh, these racialized notions of who in America is deserving, and these things that interact actually. So we find that both sort of at the individual level, there's this connection, but also in states where you have looser credit markets, you see uh, a lot more private funding for things like education and unemployment. And in states where you don't have that big change in the credit markets, where you don't have a lot of easing of credit, you don't see the same types of policies getting pushed. Um, and so we've found that there's actually this, this strong relationship in America between these racial frames and the availability of credit. Very interesting. I read your uh, syllabi for your upcoming courses. They look great. Race and U.S. politics and the politics of consumer finance. I really liked what you're asking your students to do in the politics of consumer finance class. You you have some assignments where you want them to look into the social history of debt. You'd like them to interview people who have worked through the Great Recession and the pandemic recession. And my favorite question of all that you ask students is to summarize their housing history and to make an educated guess about its future. I think that these are really nice probing questions for undergrads to consider. When you think about them in aggregate, what are you hoping your students will take away from your class at the end of the semester? Oh, I'm so glad you brought some of those up because they were just the most fun activities to do. And I was lucky to have a very small class the first time I taught that class. And so I got to actually hear all the students' stories. So one thing I really want students to take away from my consumer finance class is to realize that something like consumer finance is actually about them. It's about their lives, their decisions, their families, and their futures. It's not some abstract economic thing. It's, it's how they pay for their meals. Um, so I try to make it as much as possible something that is tangible, that is real, and that is right in front of them. Um, I think my, one of my favorite exercises for that was the interviewing exercise about the Great Recession, because a lot of students interviewed family members or close friends, people who they knew really well, but often they'd never talked with them about this major economic event that they'd lived through. And I think it was really valuable for students to realize that these recessions are not sort of abstract. And some students, I think, knew that very intuitively because they would have been also sort of present and watching as these things unfolded. But I think for other students, realizing that this was not just an abstract thing that happened, but something that affected their neighbors, that affected their parents, that affected you know everyone around them was really a valuable experience. And I, I hope it shapes the way that they are now viewing what's going on right now as we enter an economic recession that looks like it'll be worldwide. So Right. It'll be a, a really interesting time to be thinking about to be thinking about consumer finance. 
I, I was really drawn to your work in part because I think it helps close this gap where there are these matters that occur in this rarefied air of economics, and then there's what happens in our lives. And the two are not discrete by any means. They're, they're very much uh, intertwined and overlapping. And I, I think some of these questions uh, really drive that realization home in an important way. I even I even think about people in my life. I, I didn't I didn't do the full uh, one-page uh, paper reflection, but I, I certainly thought about each of the questions in relation to my own life and friends and family members. And I think it's very strange this uh, cognitive dissonance that occurs among a lot of Americans. Where on the one hand, I think we are uh, obsessed with money uh, in U.S. culture, but but on the other hand, there's there's a sort of persistent fear around it. And I, I mean, a lot of taboo. concepts can, can become very, yeah, taboo or opaque. Um, I, I even, even just the barometer of economic health being the stock market when uh, millions and millions of Americans don't have any money in the stock market at all. I, I read recently that the top 20% uh, in terms of the number of stocks they own, own 92% of the total stock. It's it's really strange, and I think that it's really good to sort of bring this stuff into contact with reality because it's very real and it's very impactful. And as you said, it's it's people's lives and family. So, so that's that's really good. No one can accuse you of being uh, up in your ivory tower, uh, not <laughs> thinking about what's happening on the ground. So that's really good. Tess, given your research thus far, what are some ideas that that you would like to be incorporated at least into rhetoric if not law at this point um I, for example i read andrew yang's book about ubi uh i thought some of it was interesting i don't know if you're familiar with the dutch historian rutger bregman who wrote a, a book about utopia which advocates for uh, a 15-hour work week open borders and ubi how do you feel about some of these these hot ideas as they relate to fixing uh macroeconomic ills well, I think this is the time for blue sky thinking. So I'm all in favor of thinking about new ideas and, and really trying to maybe try some of them out. Something that I'm fascinated by that has gotten a little bit of play lately is the idea of postal banking. So mm. when we think about how we might improve banking for Americans, many of whom have terrible access to good banking institutions and in many especially in race class subjugated communities, it's often uh, fringe credit lenders who are the main credit granting institutions. So you have payday lending and title lending. But we actually have a already existing set of post offices that are scattered all over the country. And we have this infrastructure in place. And what if when people were born and they, you know, you're a US citizen, you're born, you get your social security number and that social security number is also your bank account number. And you have a bank account that you can use without fees, that you can use at any post office, and that you don't have to deal with Bank of America to get your sort of basic credit and debit functionality as a, as a person. And I think thinking about how we might increase people's access to quality credit institutions that could make small loans, that could... So I think if if the government wanted to think about how they would help people going through bankruptcy, one thing that they might consider is debt consolidation. So if you watch daytime TV, you'll know that this is a huge industry and it's an entirely private industry. And it's one where there are some good actors and many bad actors. And it's an area where the government could give people low interest consolidating loans 
and people would avoid going through bankruptcy. They'd end up paying back the money they owed, which may be, may be good or may be bad, depending on whether you think that right. <laughs> some of those, some of these companies can be pretty exploitative in getting lending this money in the first place. But if you, if you gave people access to better financial resources, that would improve things at a fundamental level. And since we already have the infrastructure of post offices, it seems like it would be a great idea to add a banking component to that. Um, and so that's something that happens, I think, in a few different European countries, but it's something that's got, gotten a little bit of play lately. And it's an idea I really like because it really sort of pushes us to think about how we can use our existing infrastructure in more creative ways to address some of these systemic problems. I would imagine the banks aren't thrilled about the idea. Right? <laughs> Probably not. Um, but I think the sort of question of banking power is one that will also have to get addressed at some point. Uh, and I don't know how that would sort of how you would fight against that force. But I'm seeing some interesting some interesting lobbying efforts, basically, where consumer groups are coming together with a whole bunch of other groups to try to have more influence in the lobbying front. And I'm seeing some things right now in the response to the racial violence that's been happening in the United States, where people have started thinking uh, in terms of a consumer framework. So I've had so many friends and as a you know, professor, uh, students and different faculty members encouraging me to think about using black owned bookstores or to thinking, thinking about where I, where I shop, where I get my academic resources. Um, so this sort of consumer angle, I think is potentially very powerful. And the U S has always struggled deeply with consumer movements. We've had sure. numerous successful ones in the past, but sort of the, the third wave of consumer movements, uh, hasn't, hasn't reached great heights, and maybe this is a moment when we can find a consumer movement that could care about both race and class issues, because I think that's something where you could bring these together. Yeah, and I think all of all of these things, uh, all of these issues do seem to be coming to a head and are concentrated around some of these issues about growing growing inequality, the persistence of racism, and obviously change can't come soon enough, but I do think that there is this like deeply felt ambivalence where thing, <laughs> things aren't good at the moment. I mean, we, we're all seeing the, the rising numbers of the COVID-19 case count in the U.S., but, but at the same time, I do see a, an increased appetite for blue sky thinking, as you put it. And we all have our fingers crossed that we could make something come of it. And of course, not only keep our fingers crossed, but but doing something, thinking, acting. Um, Tess, I've been thinking about a kind of through line question that I can ask my guests from here on out. I was just thinking about the nature of being a professor and how there are different nouns you could use to describe what you do. Researcher, teacher, professor, academic. And I was also thinking about how it is a continuation of school in a literal sense that you're you're in a school environment still. How do you think of yourself these days uh, when people say, what is your job? Uh, how do you answer that question? But then also, is there a way in which you think of yourself as like continuing to just be a student? You're not act, like you're getting paid, of course, to teach. But I wonder if there's if you think of it at all, at all as as like a continuation of just sort of doing what you've been doing since preschool um what are what are some of your reactions and thoughts totally um i always joke that i liked school so much i found out a way to get them to pay me to stay there it really is the dream for me because i i had a summer job once and i realized that 
real world with structures and having to do work that I didn't get to entirely choose was, was going to be difficult for me and that I thrived in an environment where I was allowed to be creative. And so school has been, you know, a huge blessing in my life and that I loved being there. I loved spending time. And then in graduate school, I realized that teaching is really my favorite way to learn and that there's no better way to understand a topic than to have to explain it to an intelligent undergraduate who knows it almost as well as you do yes. and has lots of probing questions. It's, I think it's just the most, it's the most invigorating environment. Um, and so when I think about what I do, if I were to describe my profession, I'd say a scholar. And I see that as this combination of research and teaching and instead of seeing those as, you know, very distinct spheres, I really see them as totally interactive. Um, so like one of the papers that I that we've been talking about, this paper I wrote about personal bankruptcy and race, a lot of the work in that paper about critical race theory came out of this race in US politics class I was teaching. And it's a lot of research that I didn't necessarily get as part of my graduate degree in political science because I didn't come from an institution that really valued critical race theory, but because I was teaching it and putting it in my course, I got to learn it. And therefore I got to use it as part of my research. So right. for me, it really, they really feed into each other. And then there's also the fact that I get to learn so much from my students. I think people, when I tell people I study uh, bankruptcy and race, they always sort of act like I'm, my life must be terrible and everything must be really depressing. But because I get to work with young people and with people who are in some ways going through stressful things, but who are resilient and who are, you know, doing the best they can in difficult situations, my experience is often very hopeful. So I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by young people who are trying to make a difference, who care, who want to put themselves out there. And I'm lucky enough to do research on a population who is going through a lot, but who is often more resilient and more creative and able to change their lives and impact sort of their, their futures in ways that are often incredibly striking and hopeful to me. They remind me again and again of how incredibly resilient people are in the face of enormous challenges. So I, yeah, I mostly just feel really lucky. <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, that's wonderful. That's a great reflection. I, I read a Gallup poll um, just this week that said, 13% of workers worldwide report feeling engaged with their job. Uh, in the U.S., that number is 33%. It's a tremendous tragedy that people the world over report uh, that they're not engaged with their jobs. And I think that it's a really important um, learning point for you to have done that internship and to realize the sort of demands and strictures of, you know, not having creative control over your work. And and just, I, I think for a lot of people that could incite an existential crisis because they're so sold on the narrative of having to do a certain thing in a certain job. Uh, but in fact, you can, you know, you in your case anyway, you were able to, to find a way to continue being a student. And I'm really happy you're there because I could really feel your energy and excitement uh, and animation around really important topics. Um, so, so I'm really glad you are where you are and that you're sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thanks so much, Fred. Something that you said actually just made me think about, you were talking about universal basic income earlier and getting at jobs. One of the reasons why you might really want something like universal basic income is to allow people to choose when they go into the workforce. And the sociological term for this um, is de-alienation. Mm, so Marx like has this idea that the modern worker is alienated because 
the modern worker must sell sell their work in order to survive. And right. if you can actually choose when you engage in that process, you get to de-alienate yourself. You get to work on your own terms. And I sort of decided at some point in my life that I was just going to de-alienate myself. But if we have a program like Universal Basic <laughs> Income, you enable everybody to really do that. You allow people to say, you know, I don't want to work this dead-end job that is going nowhere where my boss abuses me. I, I, I have the option to take myself out of the labor market and apply to other jobs. And I can don't have to do this sort of in a way where if I take myself out of the labor market, I don't also lose all my income and health insurance or right. anything else that's that we tie up in our in our in our labor. So if you think about like what some of the benefits of something like universal basic income could be, one might be that people can do jobs on their own terms as opposed to for mere survival. So that's sort of a I think a really powerful concept and one that some people are, you know, if you're lucky enough to have the option to de-alienate yourself, I thoroughly encourage it to choose to interact with the labor market on your own terms. Um, and if we were able to give people that choice, that would be that would be really cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I I've been working in English tutoring for a long time and uh, I help adults refine their conversation skills. I've worked with a lot of folks from South Korea and I'm fascinated and I'm a huge fan of South Korean culture. Um, but I do sometimes, and this is of course my, uh, I guess, indoctrination in certain American ethics coming through, but when I hear about the really intensive, rigorous testing that is mandatory from a very young age, and moreover, the way it filters young people in South Korea down certain occupational tracks um, before they're really old enough, you know, to have some mature amount of reflection on whether or not it's a good fit for um, the, their fully faceted selves. Um, you know, I've had a number of South Korean adults just sort of say somewhat resignedly, um, you know, yeah, I got into this job in finance or whatever, um, because I was good at math in sixth grade and then being good at math narrowed down the job options from these 20 roads down to these five. And then somehow in high school I was studying economics and then it led to finance and, and then the people weren't totally fulfilled. Um, this, this is not at all, this point is not at all to knock um, South Korean culture, but, but only to say that I, I do think um, when the U.S. is operating well on some of its principles of freedom and agency, it is when people are given, um, you know, the the liberty to um, find what really, truly at a deep level feels like a good fit for them. And, and that is really, really hard work and a huge privilege to be able to do it. Lots of people all, all over the world can't do it. But to the extent that people can, I think it can be good. <laughs> oh, I agree. And I think I I love teaching at a liberal arts college specifically for that reason, because it's a place where that it's really valued, this sort of broad educational experience. Um, I spent some time in Europe because I was a French major in college and I, I sort of spent some time interacting with European education systems, which have some similarities to the South Korean model in that they track students very young and they don't allow for a lot of switching. So if you decide you don't want to go down that track, you often would have to go all the way back to the beginning. There's sort right. of no general education <laughs> component right. beyond high, even even high school is often deeply tracked. So like it's before you even get into high school. Um, so I think you're right that that is really a massive benefit of the U.S. system that 
allows people to have far more freedom in terms of what they what what their options are. And if you were to take away the sort of impending impending doom of economic precarity, people could really exercise this amazing, amazing freedom that we do get as it's a privilege to work in an American educational institution because I get to talk with young people who are exploring many different options. They're not sort of on some track where they feel like they have no control. They have so much control over their lives and over their choices. And I mean, sometimes they have overbearing parents who have their own ideas, (laughs) but in general, they can actually exert themselves in these sort of fully realized ways. And I think you're right to point out that this is something that's very special to the American education system. And it's, you know, as a reason why I wanted to be here as opposed to in a different country. There's a there's an Oscar Wilde quote, work is the refuge of people who have nothing better to do. Uh, and, you know, classic um, scathing, witty Oscar Wilde fashion. And I, I think about that and I think he's looking at uh, I think he's he's intuiting 13 percent of the world saying that they're not engaged um, with their work, um, but they're but they're there because the world elevates work to this space that we, you know, a lot of Americans wear their 50, 60, 70 hour work weeks as a badge of honor. Mm. And there is this way in which we're such a, a comparative kind of nosy society as well. If one subscribes too readily to the notion that working hard should be this badge of honor, then the Oscar Wilde prophecy becomes true. And um, I think we should be wary of it. Mm. Well said. Um, It also makes me think about this in the U.S. You have this phenomenon, which is that the wealthy kind of hoard work. Uh, In in other eras of human history, if you were really wealthy, you took that opportunity not to work. But if you look at the United States, often it's very wealthy people who are working these 70, 80 hour work weeks. And we see this as a badge of honor, but you could also view it just as reasonably as the rich hoarding labor opportunities. Right. Um, so why? Frame, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, why do we think that these people should get to have, you know, get this this giant slice of the work pie? Why don't we redistribute some of those hours? I think, in some sense, that 15-hour work week, which I think you mentioned coming from this Dutch historian, but actually also is a Keynes idea. So John Maynard Keynes proposed the mm. 15-hour work week as well. I think it's it's very it's it's provocative at some level because it pushes us to think about what if we didn't concentrate work on these different populations so much? What if everybody worked a little and spent the rest of the time, you know, expounding on what it means to be human? Ending on the notion of uh, leaving listeners to think about expounding on what it means to be human is a, is a lovely uh, place to stop. Tess, this has been such a delight. Thanks for the great work you're doing. Um, I know that listeners, if they want to follow you at on Twitter, um, it's your name, Tess Weiss. Anything else you'd like to share? Any closing notes? Thanks so much for inviting me, Pat. Um, my website is also testwise.com. I'm not very good at tweeting, but I do occasionally update my website. So if you want to see my, <laughs> my recent research, it's it's mostly on there. Um, and just thanks so much for taking the time to do this project. I'm so excited to get to hear the interviews with people who aren't academics like me, because I think that hearing about what people do with their jobs in, in the non-academic world is often far more interesting and more... Uh, <laughs> politically provocative than some of the things that we we come across in academia so i'm super excited to hear to hear your future interviews 
Uh, thanks so much, Tess. Well, our conversation will be airing this coming Monday, and then uh, please tune in two weeks after that for my next conversation with uh, a non-academic. Thanks again. Uh, take care. Have a good day. Thanks so much, Pat. Thank you.